Our work and our lives have recently been disrupted in unprecedented ways. So, what do we learn from this time? And what type of organizational leadership is best to keep people and organizations moving forward? In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Dr. Aaron Halliday, an organizational psychologist and the co-founder of the company Trust Included, on the benefits of transformational leadership. I'm providing you with a strong recommendation to pursue transformational leadership because generally speaking, if you're looking at business-related outcomes and personal development and professional development-related outcomes, transformational leadership seems to be the way to go. So how do you keep your organization, your people, and, well, you moving along during these unprecedented times? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Aaron Halliday, thanks for joining me. Hi, Rebecca. I'm happy to be on the show. So you are an organizational psychologist. What an interesting time. I guess it's always an interesting time to be an organizational psychologist, I imagine. (laughs) But what an especially interesting time now. Yeah, um, there's a lot that can be studied during times like these, especially given the pandemic. But not just as an organizational psychologist, I would say, as a number of just academics, scientists, researchers, people who work in applied science, that sort of thing as well. It's interesting for people in my particular uh, research specialization, the research specialization I had in graduate school, because I was actually studying resiliency and trauma and adversity. And so when we're given lemons, natural disasters, we kind of make lemonade out of them and trying to learn from the mistakes or problems that we see readily occurring in society today. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about about you um, and your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, as you pointed out, I'm an organizational psychologist. This means I am a psychologist that applies the science of human behavior to the workplace. But psychology is one of those sciences that is very much interdisciplinary. I'm also kind of centrally focused on positive organizational psychology. So this is basically looking at being proactive and cultivating strengths rather than waiting for problems to take over in the workplace. I focus a lot of attention on meaningful work. I I focus on things like emotional intelligence, how to hire effectively, making sure that people are happy, healthy, and engaged in their work day to day. Basically, the philosophy that I come at things is from the standpoint of if you're waiting until your organization is experiencing great, great problems, then you've waited too long. So it's much better to be proactive. Yeah. I came into this occupation by getting a PhD in my field from the University of Western Ontario. I've spent eight years there. I actually got my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD from that university. I've also done quite a bit of work with groups that are in great need of social service. So I've uh, committed myself to working in the past with suicide intervention lines. I've uh, worked with people who are former violent offenders. So I I tried to give myself a wide range of experiences and try to integrate that into my understanding of how to help people uh, in a wide range of contexts, both in and out of the workplace. I would venture to guess there's no shortage of need of trying to make workplaces more healthy, given the context of what people need in order to thrive in the environment in which they're working, because they spend so many hours in their workplace 
that that environment becomes very important, I imagine, in shaping uh, their experience in life. Yeah, I mean, everybody tends to view work today through the lens of the nine to five, but it's not usually that. <laughs> in, in all reality, it's, it's extended well beyond that. And when work seeps into other aspects of our lives like this, it's any, any way that you can uh, manage to improve people's conditions in the work environment, it, it's, it's going to have a meaningful impact in the way that they live their lives, broadly speaking. You know, people are working sometimes 10 to 12 hours a day. They're constantly connected through, you know, the internet and their phones and things like that. We see a great movement today due to largely situational context of the, the pandemic here. And what we see typically with remote work is that people tend to overwork uh, when they're involved in remote work rather than uh, underwork, rather than what most micromanagers would tend to believe. So, uh, yeah, there's a great need to focus on making sure that we get the overall operations of work correct, that we're including the human factor in what we do. Uh, people play an enormous role in the workplace, and they're an enormous component of the final product or service of your organization. And to omit it from the equation is an enormous folly. So I'm a huge advocate of, of that, yeah. So Aaron, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about some of the articles that I've seen on social media in relation to identity, personal identity, and work. So I know a lot of folks believe or have put out the advice that people need to disconnect their personal identity from their work. I'm interested to understand your take on how much people can disconnect themselves and their identity from their career and their work. Sure. I think it's very much down to the individual in question. What they tend to see, and I think clinical psychology practice, is that people who have a whole many different components to who they are as an individual. So for some people, that happens to be, I am my job or I am my occupation. And that, that's about it. That's, these are the people who, whenever you're at a cocktail party, their primary focus is, okay, what do you do? They only ask you a question. And then you have people on the opposite end of the spectrum where you know they have their, their career, but they also have their life. They have hobbies, they have kids, they have other things that are going on for them. And I think what the research it tends to support is the idea that if you have many different facets, or many different little components of who you are as an individual that make up your identity as a human and your self concept, you're more likely to do better, in the sense that you're more likely to have greater, more consistent amount of well being. And the idea that it, behind that is that, especially during times of great disruption, you're more likely to not have the the core of your identity completely dismantled. So if you lose your job and your identity is only your occupation, this becomes a, a kind of a devastating blow for some people. Other people, you know, they, they lose their job, but they have a core set of friends and they have different components of like who they are and all these little things. And in the aggregate, if they just lost their job, it's, it's not as devastating a blow maybe to them unless they are as critically dependent on the income or other, other factors that, like that. But I wouldn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. So I wouldn't want to necessarily say, you know, I just have my career. But once you have a fairly well diversified understanding of who you are, and you've integrated that into your identity, I think that it's also important to never stop growing. <laughs> like, you're always going to want to take a minute and, and, and look back and, and, and recognize the change as you move forward in life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with regards to that, I don't think that it's fair for people to necessarily judge people for choosing to live their lives one way or the other. And some people, they're fairly content on living their life while placing a high value or high priority on work and less of a value on family. I myself, 
me and my partner, we have no interest in having kids, for example. We do have two beautiful Huskies, and we're very happy with that. But it's just, we are both career-oriented people as well. And it's not necessarily that that's the only defining property of our lives. We have an incredible group of friends that we see regularly, we make time for, and we have a heck of a lot of hobbies, each of us. But I think that people are afraid of workaholism, and that is accurate for many people. However, it's not accurate for everyone. So we have to take a very targeted approach to understanding the, the individual in question before we go labeling them with anything. Uh, and, and that workaholism is, is definitely one of those instances where like, it is a sort of pathology that should be dealt with. So you don't want to target somebody with this sort of label uh, without due cause, that sort of thing. So Aaron, tell me your thoughts around how organizations should leverage personality assessments and, and how they should consider those results in relation to their employees. What we find is that if you're measuring personality with an accurate and uh, reliable and valid personality assessment, so one that's actually measuring personality traits, then they generally are fairly good predictors, broadly speaking, with regards to a host of work-related outcomes. And it's not necessarily that, for example, one side of the spectrum of a trait is always good or always bad. It's sometimes highly dependent on the job. There is, for example, some biases orienting around stuff like people generally tend to like to hire people who are extroverted in nature. Meanwhile, the research shows that in many professions, you don't really need somebody with a high level of extroversion to be a good performer in a certain role. Uh, what tends to be better more often than not for sales roles, for example, is a, a level of what they call ambiversion. So that's like kind of a middle of the ground between introvert and extrovert. What you want to make sure, though, is that A, the personality scales that you're using or the assessments that you're using are reliable and valid, and that the criteria by which you're hiring uh, or using for selection purposes or developmental purposes, if you're trying to you know, upskill them, that the traits are related to the outcomes that you're, you're looking to, to enhance. So with regards to sales, you might look at sales performance, and then you want to make sure that the traits that you're assessing with an assessment are actually related to the, the outcome of sales performance. So in that case, as I just mentioned, ambiversion is a quality that tends to be notably related to sales performance. In other organizational contexts, a trait that's highly related with uh, performance, broadly speaking, is conscientiousness, which is this idea that you're a hardworking, diligent individual. What I have frequently encountered these days, oddly enough, is that people believe that if you hire on the basis of traits or if you hire on the basis of culture, that you're destroying diversity within the organization. You know, there's something to be said about that. The idea is that if you're hiring on the basis of valid traits, right? Uh, so traits that have been demonstrated through science to be effective in enhancing performance or uh, used in such selection criteria or developmental criteria, then you're going to be basically situating these people to thrive within whatever occupational role that you're doing. So that in and of itself is probably a good thing. And then on top of that, you don't, what you don't want to do when you use these sorts of personality assessments or, or cultural fit assessments is try to create a cookie cutter mold of everybody who works in this organization must be high conscientiousness and an ambivert. That would be not necessarily a good thing, especially if you're surveying 32 different traits, right? You basically want to narrow it down to the core traits that are required for that job to be successful and use those. Uh, and when I say this, if you look at things like 
cultural fit, you would probably want to make sure that there's a couple core values that people are aligned on that are critical towards the occupation that you're trying to hire. But what this does is it avoids you running the entire gamut of all the possible aspects of being human and making like a prototypic outline of that individual. So by selecting only a couple traits or a couple culture fit attributes or values, basically what you're doing is you're leaving a wide array of variables so that people can vary from different cognitive thought processes, you know, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. And when you have a wide range of this sort of thing, it's what they call cognitive diversity. And that's what helps you as an organization be more creative, think divergently, helps you get through various problem sets, makes you a little bit more adaptive and resilient. But I'm suggesting that people have some personality traits and values that they more than likely would be benefiting the organization and themselves from aligning on within an organization. You're just making sure that you have what I consider to be like a minimum standard by which they can fit within your organization. And, and if you look at this in the context of a relationship, we all have these little minimum standards, right? We all have these. If you're forming a romantic relationship with somebody, we all have these little I guess, deal breaker requirements, right? And I don't think it should be any different within an organization, uh, as long as you don't have too many deal breakers. Sometimes you encounter people in life who like, you know, I want a man or I want a woman, and she has to be like seven feet tall, or, or super skinny, or he has to be jacked, or whatever. And, and they, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And it's like, okay, well, you understand that, A, it's going to be really hard to find that person. <laughs> And B, uh, if you only were to apply this in your life, not just to your relationship, but to, you know, your friends and your family, you'd have a very narrow window by which to view the world. And that would not make you very well equipped to deal with the world probably in the long run. So it's not really different in the workplace, in my head anyway. And and in the research, I I think that that's found too, because they do find that diversity is good. They do find that having a divergencies in personality and divergencies of thought promote performance in the workplace and they perf- promote creativity in the workplace. Uh, so we want to preserve that. I think it's an interesting distinction between the qualities people have and the values people have. Yeah. I mean, here you're just talking about like traits of people versus values of an organization or values of a of, of person. And they've done research that looks at what are your values and what are the values of an organization? And then they evaluate the fit of that. So like, do they match? Are they highly correlated? That sort of thing. And what you can find is that organizations that have a high degree of fit with the people that they hire and people that have a high degree of value associations with uh, or fit with the organization, they tend to just perform better. That makes sense intuitively, (laughs) but there are a lot of people that look at cultural fit and they look at personality profiling by which to, as a means to select people in an organization. And they are naturally hesitant to use it or they're outright against it. And their thought processes is that it absolutely destroys diversity in an organization. And that can be true, but people are complex. And I think people forget that. <laughs> and so even if you're hiring on like five or six things, which isn't necessarily uncommon, Some personality profiles I've read have up to like 32 different components of them. I'm not saying that that's right to hire on the basis of necessarily, but they exist. And if you're hiring on five or six traits and values, there's still like a wide range of properties that offer a high degree of complexity of the human 
that you aren't selecting on the basis of. And if you're not selecting them on the basis of these variables, they're going to vary to a high degree. Some are going to be high and some are going to be low and all sorts of different things. And this is the type of diversity that you want in an organization that's actually going to be helpful. Right. I wonder your thoughts around this. You've hired somebody that meets the organizational values or qualities that you're looking for in an employee. So you might consider that to be someone who has a cultural fit. What was the significance of that individual's manager or supervisor in their environment? So if that individual has their own biases around what a good employee looks like, how disruptive could that be to the experience that that employee has? And how important is it that that supervisor really matches with the expectations the employee has once they're brought into the organization? I'm sure there is some research out there showing that there's the amount of fit between leader and subordinate. This is what they typically call in the research that probably does enhance the organizational relationship and the performance of the individual, et cetera. But I think that if you consider that as a possible framework by which organizations are operating, I think that's the easy way out if you think about it. And I say that because it's easy to work with people who are similar to you. It's easy for you know, a manager to work with somebody who has the exact same headspace as them, who has the same prioritization of problems as them. But it's not necessarily what I would say is the demonstrated hallmark of a good leader. Good leaders should be able to work with darn near anybody. I know that's probably an exaggeration. There are some people that within an organization, they just, it's not what they want to do. And that's not where they want to be in life. And they just wind up there. I'm not trying to put the onus on the leader uh, here. There is a, a mutual amount of responsibility that everybody takes between a leader and a subordinate. But a good leader should be able to motivate uh, and, and, and work with anybody who, is, who legitimately wants to be there, who is there because they, they you know, sought the role for the right reasons, who has what they call intrinsic motivation, which is you know, somebody who is there for a love of the job. They would do, be there whether or not you paid them. Uh, and, and so that's the ideal circumstance anyways. There are people who there, are there for just a paycheck. And good leaders should be able to work with them as well, but it's going to be a little bit more challenging. If you look at back to the question that you had asked, what I would say is that there's very little you can do in the sense of like, are you going to try and force some of these values to change? If you look at research that's out there, people generally change when they're ready to change. And there are some motivating forces that may help that. Like when people undergo crisis, sometimes their values kind of have a reference shift that sort of thing. But you can't expect that necessarily to take place in the workplace. Uh, it's, it's more of a situational thing that just kind of happens. So what I would say is if, if you're in an organization, what I would recommend is to work on and try and promote the development of good leadership in your organizations. There's a whole bucket of literature out there about leadership, whether it be through different theoretical outlines or stuff like authentic leadership, there's stuff like charismatic leadership. What is one of the most demonstrative, effective kinds of leadership that are out there is this thing called transformational leadership. And, you know, that's that's one of the ones that we strongly promote within my company there, Trust Included, to the development of transformational leadership, just because it's one of the ones that has one of the most demonstrated effectiveness, not only in Western cultures, but all throughout the world. 
actually they've compared it to many different forms of leadership, uh, you know, transactional leadership, which is basically this old idea of carrot and stick. So, you know, punishment and reward and transformational leadership actually performs this. They've also compared it to what's called laissez-faire leadership, which is this idea that you're a very laid back leader to the point where you're kind of avoiding <laughs> your leadership role. And they find that it's actually a lot better than that as well. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would say whatever you're trying to do, use evidence to back up what you're trying to advocate for and whatever your goals are, are set for. And I'm providing you with a strong recommendation to pursue transformational leadership. Because generally speaking, if you're looking at business-related outcomes and personal development and professional development-related outcomes, transformational leadership seems to be the way to go. Yeah. And one of the things I picked up as you talked through what that successful transformational leader might look like, it sounds like they might excel or have the, you know, have the ability to tap into their employees' intrinsic motivation. Yeah. They act as a role model first. And this is really important. They try to display the best possible case of what you could possibly be uh, as an ethical leader in that organization. And it's usually aligned with the values of the organization. But it, we just talked about the importance of diversity. So I don't want to strain that too much. But I'm talking about the core set of values of an organization, the ones that are absolutely critical for you to kind of align on. And this goes to the deal breaker kind of thing. If you're a police officer, for example, you're definitely going to want to be aligned with the value of honesty. If you're a nurse, you're going to probably want to be aligned with the value of, uh, you know, nurturance and this sort of idea of care. And then the next ones that we're looking at are making sure that you are able to provide inspirational motivation to people. And this is, you know, you inspire confidence in them, a sense of purpose. You know, you get them to be motivated by the work itself. The idea is that you establish meaning to what you're doing in your job. This may be as simple as, in some cases, providing a, a line of sight for people that are actually working in these organizations to see the downstream effects of their jobs day to day on whether it be the clients or the people whose lives you're actually changing or impacting. Another thing that they do is they provide intellectual stimulation. So these individuals grant their workers or subordinates a high degree of autonomy. Uh, they also allow them to explore new ideas, be more creative. And this gives a lot of ownership to the work that you do. And when you give somebody a bunch of ownership to something that they do, it basically, through a sense of pride and, and integrity, people, they tend to perform well under those circumstances. And then they also make sure that they give people individualized consideration. And the idea of this is that they're frequently interacting with these people on a personal level, they're checking in with them. How you doing? What's up? Is there any way that I can help you? <laughs> you know, like this is uh, the idea that if you're in contact with people and showing that you care, not just superficially, actually engaging with them and actually caring, they're more likely to want to work for a boss like this. And, and it goes a long way it, because you're also down the trenches with these people. Basically, what you're able to do is you have a better line of sight to the problems as they creep up and you can resolve them proactively. So all of this is very important. This is basically transformational leadership in a nutshell. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting in the current world we're living in, where we have a lot of people working from home, 
becoming a little bit more disconnected from the people they typically work with from a day-to-day perspective. Of course, depending on your role and the background um, of your work and your organization. But I would imagine that in the current day, that last piece, making sure you, you maintain the individualized considerations or making sure that you're, for instance, having regular one-on-ones and staying connected with people is critically important mm-hmm. uh, to keep people moving forward in, in the current environment. Yeah, on that, I really, really am kind of concerned for what's going to happen to micromanagers because I think that what we're seeing right now with the migration to remote work under this the the COVID pandemic 2020 is that you're going to see a bunch of micromanagers sink and a bunch of micromanagers kind of grow and develop into something different. Just poor managers, not not necessarily micromanagers. And this idea of individualized consideration, uh, it can be reflected in two ways. If you look at it in the micromanagement kind of way, which is not what we're talking about, you know, checking in on somebody 30 times for those TPA reports is not what you want to do. <laughs> that's not individualized consideration. That's neuroticism showing. So when I talk about this uh, individualized consideration, when we talk about this in a remote work setting, this is, you know, having frequent contact with the people that are working remotely. You can do this not necessarily via email because I think that's incredibly impersonal. But uh, you know, checking in with them face to face, you know, do, doing video chat check-ins, that sort of thing. It requires a high degree of emotional intelligence. Wonderful thing about emotional intelligence is that you can build it and develop it and work to grow uh, what you actually have. So you know, it may seem awkward a little bit at first, but the more you engage in it and the more you actually mean it, the better it is especially if you're a manager that has typically struggled with this in the past. If you're reaching into somebody under these contexts, especially under these contexts, and you have a very poor track record of reaching into that, that person under normal contexts, it's going to be a little bit of a, a struggle. You're going to probably wonder, you know, is this legitimate, especially if you're a micromanager, are you legitimately interested in, in checking my welfare? Or are you just trying to urge me to complete those TPA reports? So you have to keep at it and establish that concept that I trust you to get your work done, but I'm trying really hard to make sure that you have your needs met. And, you know, that's going to take some work. It's going to take a uh, concerted effort. And I encourage people to consider their language and consider their energy that they have when they come into the conversation. If they come into it with a really neurotic energy, that's probably not as comforting to somebody <laughs> as it would be if they're coming into it with like, you know, a relaxed kind of candor. They're just checking in and I'm not saying you have to be their best friend, but be concerned about who they are and what they're experiencing, especially during today's times. I mean, like <laughs> there are people out there, you know, having a hard time finding a hospital bed that could be impacting people's family. You never know who this is necessarily impacting or on what level. And that level of individualized consideration, showing it now of all times may actually be really meaningful for people to actually experience too, because they might think that, oh, they are legitimately caring about my welfare, that of my family, that of, you know, the people that impact my day-to-day life, not only that, but my work. So, you know, this might be a good opportunity for managers that are struggling or micromanagers to kind of develop these new skills in a way that is more productive. What might actually be a a really good idea uh, is for these managers that were typically struggling to be coached by uh, transformational leaders within the organization that are like stellar leaders. Because you have these electronic communications and stuff like that, this is a lot easier to do in 2020 than it was, you know, a long time ago. Now we can get people involved in this sort of thing at great distances. It doesn't have to be super impersonal, just texting or email. And and now we have the capability to be a better leader and have a face-to-face dialogue with somebody 
in a way that we weren't necessarily in the past. And I think that we can do a lot better today than we did uh, you know, ages ago. Right. And I do wonder if things will start to shift. I think we went through a couple of weeks where people were almost in everything is fine mode. Yes, we have to work from home, but we're set up for this. You know, we're good. But I think there might be a danger organizations face in becoming tone deaf. So I've heard of organizations telling their employees, our goals haven't changed. We're going to keep moving forward just like we planned, like nothing else is happening. We're just going to keep moving forward, encourage their employees to do the same. Is there some level of risk in organizations doing that? <laughs> yeah, I have heard a number of reports. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a medical practitioner. But I think if you look out there, it's, it's in the New York Times. It's in The Guardian. Fox is reporting on this. You know, it doesn't matter which spectrum of publication, right, left, or in the middle, they're all reporting, you know, this is probably going to last like a long, like we're talking months here, and it's probably going to be cyclical, where we have to quarantine people. So I think that this is going to cause a large disruption to the way we work. You might, you might have the same goals and, and things like that, and that's fine. It's good to have goals, right? And it's good to make sure that you're prioritizing the same goals. But how you achieve those goals, it, it might be drastically changed. And so for, for an organization to come off and say, nothing's going to change here, I think that that's somewhat naive. <laughs> but I mean, time will tell. So I could be horribly wrong. I'm about as informed on the epidemic as the rest of us. But I think it's good to have effective strategies to carry out your goals. And by ignoring possible life-changing events that could reshape a, a large segment of society and the way we operate and do business and disrupt supply chains and stuff like that. Unless your business is entirely like able to be converted into a remote industry, even then I, I don't think it would necessarily mean that you're able to function day to day the same way that we were doing before COVID hit us. Because so many other businesses around them are, are similarly disrupted, and even if you were able to be entirely remote, if you say you were doing software and that all that required was coding, you know, like whoever you're selling software to at the end of the day, they're going to be impacted. So that means your markets are going to be impacted. And that means that your strategy is definitely going to have to change either way. So I don't see businesses as carrying on the way it used to for a while. I think some of these organizations are probably saying that with the idea of trying to keep people calm. And that's well-intentioned, but I'm a huge proponent of radical transparency. So the idea is that you tell people when something is bad, you tell people when something is good, and you tell some people when you don't necessarily know if you have a solution to something, but we're working on it. And some people think that's bad for morale, but I think that in the long run, that's good for morale in the sense that you are preparing people for the unknown. If you are being obscure about things or dancing around, the, you know, being around the bush about it, it can do more long-term harm than good. There was a case, uh, his name's Michael Osterholm. He is a, an epidemiologist, if I, if I understand things. He's quite well known in the community of infectious disease. He, he actually did an episode on Joe Rogan, and he was talking about a community that was impacted by meningitis. And he came out and said, I think it was something like one in seven people will you know, suffer meningitis in, in this community. And everybody was kind of taken back, but they knew that they were going to be devastated in this community about this, but it prepared them for the long haul. And in that interview, after it, they were like, well, why did you tell the people this? And he was like, because the people deserve to know. At the end of the day, they, they seemed that they were you know, better prepared for it. And I think that that is a good example of radical transparency. And 
in a business context, you know, some employers are going to have to tell their people that, you know, we are engaging in layoffs or we may, we are considering engaging in these things. Keeping them involved in the conversation is important. Letting them know in advance what to predict is important. It may change their lives. It may affect their livelihood. It may impact their families. And so we have to be quite candid about some of these things uh, and, and include them in the dialogue too. Uh, there's a great example of a couple of companies. I think Honeywell's one. And basically the idea was that when they were under horrendous economic conditions and the business was not looking like it was going to be able to survive, what they wound up doing was uh, mandating everybody in the company, whether you're here the lowest on the totem pole or you're the CEO, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to take a mandatory four-week furlough, so unpaid vacation. And this is how we're going to maintain our staff. Uh, It's going to suck for some people, but the idea is that we're not going to have to fire anybody. And at the end of the day, if you can restructure your organization or find alternative means by which to show that you prioritize your people and that you're going to do what you can to keep the business running, but it's going to require some changes and some sacrifices throughout, then that's what you have to do. And I think that that's the direction that we should be going with things. Be transparent and incorporate people into the discussion and try and make sure that if you're going to be engaging with discussions of, you know, sacrificing a whole lot of people, that that's probably one of the, you know, the later or final options that you can entertain. Yeah. And I think in general, people are becoming more and more aware that almost all companies are at some level of risk right now. Oh, yeah. Many companies will go out of business. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality. I've seen it locally. Like I feel like a local, lot of local businesses are very vulnerable. Small businesses, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult to overcome. Nobody can come in your store right now. Yeah, especially if you're in the restaurant industry, the hotel industry, if you're a cruise industry, you're you're, you're going to be facing a really big uphill battle. Especially, yeah. Right. Just kind of going back to your point on bringing more people into the conversation to be able to ideate potential solutions or new creative options to stay in business. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably an important thing for companies to start thinking more about. Yeah, that's what we call a democratic form of leadership. I am a strong advocate of that, too, where you encourage people to be involved in the participatory process and the discussion of making decisions. But if you look at a lot of boardrooms, uh, even though the companies themselves may be diverse, right? A lot of boardrooms are not. A lot of boardrooms are the same highly educated uh, white guys that are 50, 60 plus. And that's cool uh, to some degree in, in the sense that, you know, they worked really hard to get their degree and that's where they landed. However, it doesn't speak towards a lot of diversity in making decisions, right? Yeah. Being an entire C-suite that is filled with the same mentality of things that doesn't allow you to have a very clear understanding because you might be a little bit out of touch with people of different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses. Like, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, So by including these people in the conversation, everybody in the conversation, you have a better understanding of what certain sacrifices may actually do to the communities that you're impacting. And you have a responsibility to these people, not necessarily only in the sense of an employer, but the community that your business is operating in is a stakeholder, right? And so when you fire a bunch of people, you're not only impacting them as employees, but you're impacting the community at large through unemployment. And so you want to make these decisions by including certain people in the conversation that haven't necessarily been traditionally included. It ties back in again to that concept of diversity. If you have an organization that's highly diverse, you want to be able to meet the needs of these diverse people 
and you want to actually be able to take advantage of the creative capacity, the innovative capacity of having these people on hand to tap into their divergencies of thought, the divergencies of thinking, make sure that you can make use of this creative and innovative capacity. Yeah. And I imagine just kind of tying that back to what you were saying before about transformational leadership. Yeah. I mean, I think there wouldn't be anything more purposeful to employees right now than to feel like they might have the contribution that could help save the company or that could make a difference in their community or could transform the work of their their customers or their clients. And so I feel like there's a really important story to be told there around the importance of transformational leadership in this moment, keeping people engaged and giving them a real sense of purpose and meaning uh, in that level of a contribution in relation to ideating potential solutions for where we're at today. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Cool. I got to point back to a post you did on LinkedIn. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it was a good one. So I've had that conversation with Aaron just for the listeners in, in the past that he tends to be very bold and very honest in his, his posts, which I think is refreshing and amazing. So I want you to keep doing that. Thank you. But this particular post, the reason I want to bring this up is because you had mentioned a lot of futurist themes in relation to applying foresight to our current day. So um, I'm going to quote you here. But I think part of what gives people hope during times like these is for people to consider all the possible futures that may come of this experience. And I think that's important for people to think about, because not only does it allow us to leverage the diverse thoughts, the diverse backgrounds of people within organizations, but also that, that part of hope, I think, is really important. So we think about giving people purpose and contributing to people's intrinsic motivation I would imagine if you have them help envision what a future could look like or the potential futures that are possible for an organization, or maybe even for themselves, for that matter, it seems pretty powerful in this moment. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for complimenting that, that post-it. You're welcome. You know, I guess a little moment of self-reflection there <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the making of it, too. I guess what I was looking at when I was looking uh, at that, I, I see a lot of people that are rightfully kind of speculating about things. But then I did encounter a little bit of backlash from some people that were like, uh, under the idea that anybody who's just throwing out opinions right now about what the future is going to look like, they're basically telling them to shut up. And the idea is that nobody knows what the future is going to be like. And I'm like, okay, but that's, if anything, I think this is an opportunity for us to be considering what the future could be looking like. And the reason behind that is that I think we're, we live in a time and I won't get political on this podcast or anything. We live in a time where I think if you look at the last election, a lot of people were voting under the concept, the ideation that they just weren't satisfied with things, whether they be Democrat, whether they be Republican, it didn't really matter somewhere in between. It didn't really matter. And I think that says a lot about people's desire for change. I don't think that has changed a whole lot in the last four years. I think that if you look at things, not just in America and in Canada too, there's been some discussions about, you know, political motivations for change with regards to the electoral reform and other things. But the point being that people are ready for social change in a lot of regards. We see a tremendous amount of wealth inequality right now. We see a lot of problems and not a lot of changes being made. I think there's a, a great opportunity for us to consider what the world could be down the road. I'm not saying that we have to, you know, strip everything that we know from things. But I think there are a lot of ways that we can make improvements. And if we look at things the way they are right now, we have no idea whether our economy is going to be completely shattered and have to rebuild and restructured. And, and the last time that we saw an enormous 
depression that, that came of things like this, it totally transformed American society. The Great New Deal was formed and, you know, Roosevelt kind of took the wheel and, you know, did a whole bunch of interesting public works projects. It built a, a great amount of wealth for the country. It, it did a whole lot that we were talking about transformational leadership. That's transformational leadership. He inspired change and he helped people fulfill it. And he tried to fulfill people's needs by listening to the people. So yeah, I, I think part of it that does give us hope is to consider the future of what it could be and not just be consumed with the despondency of our current and present situation. Uh, I know we all are kind of locked inside right now, and it's maybe for the long haul, for all we know. But that's not necessarily a reason to give up hope. You can take a, a moment, and it doesn't have to be with regards to great steps in society for making huge, enormous societal changes, although that's cool. I encourage everybody to dream. But, you know, it could be an opportunity for you to expand and improve upon yourself and, and imagine where you could be in the future. By the time all this blows over, you could have a new skill under your belt. You could be halfway through a manuscript. There's a whole bunch of things that you could do. And, and I think it's great to, to consider those options. Yeah, I don't think of the future in terms of this is this is set in stone. It's one reason why I'm doing this podcast in the first place, because I see there's multiple opportunities. And one of the things I, I love to do is get people involved and inspired to be a part of the conversation about the future. Yeah, But that doesn't mean that we're ignoring the current situation around us. But one of the things that's really important is that nobody's saying exactly what the future will look like. But it's important for us to think, what are the potential futures that we might have in front of us? And what can we do? What can we do to empower ourselves to help shape that future? Right. And that doesn't mean anything that's set in stone. In fact, it means quite the opposite. But it also means that our action today or our action over the next several weeks, several months, or however long, will help shape whatever future that we end up with. And for us to envision that gives us a map or gives us a path towards that future. So I, of course, personally feel it's very important that we talk about those potential opportunities for the future, different paths that we can go. But I also think that point of hope is so important, so important in this moment. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm right in there in that boat with you. I think that you can take one of two paths. This is my opinion on it. And that's one, you can be consumed with the idea of what you're going through in the now, which is kind of an ironic kind of situation if you're somebody who believes in mindfulness. Or you can be a little bit more hopeful about things in the sense that if you're entertaining options of what the future could be, it's they're not all bad. And that is you know, incredibly good for hope. I guess that does also tie into mindfulness too, in the sense that mindfulness is about this idea that all things are temporary and it's this non-judgmental approach to circumstances, emotions, and behaviors and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, we talk about like not really making judgments. And I think that's one of the things we all need to be potentially cautious of, of making judgments of one another or labeling one another. And I think we've seen so much of that on social media. Tensions are high, right? Yes. People often lash out when they are afraid and uncertain, especially with regards to the future. And when you see certain things in the media or even in your day-to-day -day lives, I'm sure a lot of us, I, I've personally encountered it. When you go to the grocery store and it's like, there's nothing on the shelves sometimes. Right. It can be a terrifying first experience for people that have never seen it before like that. 
even if they're not necessarily aware of the emotions that they're experiencing as they experience them, it might be causing you some unrest inside. And that may be contributing to why you're lashing out at people or being slightly more aggressive, not only online, but in person with one another. And then you'd stack up on top of that, the fact that you're not really going out or living your life day to day the way that you normally would. And, you know, family stress can be another component of that work stress, you might be expecting a layoff or two. And all this builds up. And you see it foaming over on social media. You see it foaming over when people go to the grocery store. I had a woman, she ran by me in the grocery store during, you know, grocery store panic. I was the only there just to buy a couple items, but she clipped me and, you know, she shattered my cell phone mm. on the floor. Uh, she knocked by and she didn't even notice and kept going. And it's just like, okay, you know, and, and that it's little things about understanding where that probably came from. And, you know, it's disappointing for me. I had to get a new one, but I understood like, People are afraid and and I'm not going to blame people for when a pandemic is going on. I can't I can't really blame people for these sorts of careless actions. It requires a lot of understanding and openness and and just trying to empathize with your fellow man. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I had a grocery store experience yesterday too. Yeah. And I noticed the same kind of things that you did. Of course, there's a lot of empty shelves. Not as bad as when my husband went shopping last week. And, uh, you know, a lot of things were gone. We had no problem finding most things. Yeah, my, my sister has four kids. Uh, and uh, and she she was almost out when she went to the grocery store. So I was like, well, how are you going to survive? <laughs> but uh, they made it work. <laughs> you find ways. Uh, I mean, I think that's kind of the, the creative thinking that we've all had to do. For me, I feel like I'm in a position of privilege compared to many people. So we're able to get the groceries that our family needs and have things in our house that we need to get by. Not everybody is in that circumstance, but but you're right. The fear is what's creating empty grocery store shelves. If I don't buy the toilet paper today, I might not have toilet paper in the future. Right. But also just encountering people who are facing that grocery store experience in multiple ways. One woman who probably would have run by and broken my cell phone if she had the opportunity that was basically running through the store uh, trying to get out of there as soon as she could. Other people who seemed relatively unaffected were shopping as normal, weren't really practicing social distancing for the most part. And then you start to wonder all these different messages we hear in the media about you know, how we should approach these experiences with other people and wondering if we're doing it right. Yeah. I think to some extent, you know? No, I agree. And I think that some people are hearing these reports from the government and CDC and the WHO, and they, they look at these recommendations for maximum group size. And they say, I think, you know, the report was to say, you know, no, no communal meetings with 50 people. So obviously, if we have a meeting with 49 people, we're good. Or if we have, you know, a dinner party, we're good. I think, and I, again, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm just going from what I hear from people like that have reported on it. Some of them have been epidemiologists that have been interviewed, just like everybody else, that these things are coming out on YouTube by people who we rarely hear from these in this day and age, the experts. And, you know, I think when they talk about social distancing and social isolation, they're, they're talking about, you know, making concerted efforts not to meet with people. And, you know, when they say maximum caps, they don't want you to necessarily engage with that. But what are you going to do in a democratic society that's under the idea that they're free? You can't lock people in their homes. They're just kind of pleading with a democratic society, a free society to just engage in as much social isolation as can be possibly reasonably expected. And if you are socially isolating, you're doing the world a great public health service right now, especially if you're a young person. 
Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding or maybe not fully understanding the gravity of the situation in younger generations. Even though they may not be an at-risk demographic, there certainly are other folks in their communities that are. And it's interesting to get people to start to realize this isn't about them. Maybe I don't know if that's really a symptom of the fact that we've been living in an individualist society for so long, that now we need to think about how our actions, even more so than usual, maybe how our actions impact the people around us, whether they're people that we know or not. Yeah, we are all young ones. But the point being is that a lot of young people, their understanding of risk is drastically skewed just for the simple fact that they're young. As you age, you get more attentive to risk. And a lot of young people haven't really experienced a huge amount of trauma. Their understanding of things is a little bit different than somebody who has survived one or two market implosions in their time. The people that have you know, experienced having SARS in their backyard, it's a little different when you've gone through those. And when you have fewer life experiences that are life-changing, that result in mass deaths and mass hospitalizations, it changes your way of thinking, right? And people who are young are coming at the world with probably more of a framework of understanding of the world that the world is a safe place and everything will be all right than the average individual who has seen, for lack of a better word, who has seen some shit. That's my perspective. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a good one. I think that going through stuff in life prepares us differently for things like pandemics. Yeah. I'm not excusing their actions by any means. Like uh, these people having you know beach parties in Florida... Those people are, you know, they're doing a polar opposite of a public health service. They're, they're contaminating public health actively. And that deserves its degree of censor. It deserves its degree of like people standing up and saying, hey, look, you're acting like an idiot. Please change your behavior. And hopefully that will help people to change their behavior. But who knows? Right. Um, my mom, she's in Naples right now. That's in Florida. The average age, I think, of, of Naples is somewhere around 65. If people in that community got hit with COVID, it would be devastating. Absolutely devastating. Absolutely. Yeah. Like uh, none of this is, we're talking about how do you understand a bad situation rather than making excuses for people who are doing this sort of behavior. Right. Yeah. Different times. I mean, definitely kind of going back to not experiencing trauma in the past, even some of, some of us that may have experienced some level of trauma or difficult times in life. I don't think there's any of us that could have ever expected to live through the circumstances that we're living through now, a global pandemic. No, I agree. But recent history, especially, has been pointing us in the direction that all of these things are horrible and probable outcome uh, in our near future. We have things like antibiotic resistance. We have factory farms that are pumping animals full of antibiotics. And none of this is good because it's breeding superbugs at the wazoo. I don't know. We've seen in the last what, 20 years? We've seen SARS, H1N1. We've seen Zika. We've seen, what, avian flu. We've seen all sorts of stuff pop up. And Ebola. <laughs> and each one of these is a warning sign that's kind of been cracked off across our bow as a society, as a species, as, uh, globally speaking. And this one was the one that stuck. And this one is the one that's doing damage. And so if anything's going to clue us in, I would hope it would be this to make some progress to make some change. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. When life gives the world plague, you know, make progress. That would be my hope. So yeah, definitely. I, I think it's interesting when you brought up those previous pandemics that could have been. Yeah, yeah. Right. So with the pandemics that could have been, most people in the world were not directly impacted. So I'm wondering if that really contributed to 
the response that people had early on during the COVID crisis that people felt that, oh, this is going to die off. This is going to be another, yeah, another SARS, another Ebola. It, it affected individual, you know, geographies, but didn't necessarily spread beyond that. Uh, now we're experiencing something very different. So I'm wondering in the future, uh, the next time we have a virus start to spread and we start hearing about this, I imagine we start to process that a little differently than maybe we did with this one. Well, I, I don't know. Like we also see the renaissance of the anti-vax movement and how that's impacting measles. Like we had in the United States, one of the largest measles outbreak in, in modern post-vaccination history. And that's all tremendously concerning. What would happen if measles were to mutate and the vaccines were no longer able to hold it off at bay? And then that becomes a big problem, right? So what do you do at that point? And measles is quite contagious. It's, it's highly, highly contagious. So I think we could possibly be in a bucket of trouble if things went that way in society too. So this I'm a huge proponent of vaccination. Vaccinate your kids. Vaccinate, you know, get yourself vaccinated. If we're talking about making lemons a lemonade, hopefully this helps people understand the importance of modern medicine and how if a vaccination for COVID comes out, you should get probably vaccinated for COVID once the vaccinations have gone through proper channels and being like clinically trialed and done right. Right. I've heard a lot of people. I mean, I think it's out of frustration and fear. I, I think it really does come down to people are desperate for a sense of security or a sense that things are under control in a time that things are not certain. No, I, t I completely agree with that. But uh, sometimes red tape is there for a reason. And uh, you want to make sure that things are done right, whether they be in medicine or in work or in your personal life. So just rushing to the first solution is not necessarily the best idea. Making sure it's the actual or right solution for you is incredibly important. And uh, that's my understanding of the situation or read of the situation. And uh, we want effective solutions, not the first solution that comes out. Right. Of course, we talked a lot about what's happening around us, how it's impacting individuals, how our experiences, even just going to the grocery store, things we used to take for granted that we need to approach very differently today than we did. So thinking about how the world is impacting individual, and you mentioned earlier, the fact that sometimes we have friends and family that have been direct, directly impacted by COVID. We have people who have jobs that are directly impacted by by COVID. But we also have, of course, our folks that are the demographic of people working from home or for large organizations, have some level of job security today, but are impacted by all of these things happening around us. And I know one of the things that you've talked about here and one of the things I've noticed in your research is the importance that people not only feel connected to their work, but also that they have a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning that they're, what they're doing aligns to their goals and what's important to them. So are we going to start to see a shift on, you know, what's just important to people might be different today than it was in the past and how might that impact their engagement at work? Yeah, there's a number of points I want to touch on with regards to that. And I'll start with this. You touched on people possibly losing their jobs and, and you touched on people like having large changes to their life. And what my research on resiliency shows is that people, broadly speaking, they do better throughout hardship when they have a high degree of value clarity and flexibility. And so you may be experiencing like a loss of a job or a layoff or something like that, and that's very hard. But if you take a step back and reconsider things, you may come up with the idea that there are other things in your life that you value that are not your job or not oriented around just your job. 
like your family, like your health. And you can still rely on these properties for establishing a, a sense of well-being. Like you still have things that are going good for you in life. And that's important to consider. And then you have people who are still working and you're talking about establishing a sense of meaning and purpose in what you do. And I think that being that we're working more remotely these days, it might be harder to do that for some people. And so I would encourage leaders to, given that we might be stuck in a house for quite some time, that leaders try and communicate in their contact with people, the people that they work with, their subordinates, that their job has relevance and show them how their job is impacting people's day-to-day lives. You look at people who seem to be what people would normally say is, uh, you know, just like low-level job work. And the people that are holding these jobs at the grocery stores, your work matters tremendously right now. And the fact that you're there is helping people out. So no matter what they're doing, you want to connect it to a sense of connection and helping and a connection with others and humanity and and tie it to something that is meaningful to these individuals. I only bring up connection and helping and uh, that sort of thing, because for a lot of people, that is what is meaningful. Uh, that is what, what is derived for, to a sense of purpose in what they do, for, for not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And so if you're doing this and, and helping connect people to the idea that their work is ha- changing people's lives or improving people's lives, it can have great impacts with regards to their performance, can have great impacts with regards to their engagement and well-being. And, and these things are all great for an organization to have and tap into. But Not only that, it has an impact on people's lives and the way that they see the world. And, you know, when you're sacrificing quite a bit as an employee at a grocery store or as a nurse in this sort of circumstances, it's good to be reminded of that at the end of the day, because these people are probably so tired and burnt out in some circumstances, even just from the stress of having to do this job day to day alone, that reminding them of this may actually just be the thing that carries them through. I did some research that tapped into these sorts of things, uh, work-related outcomes as a result of being in more purposeful public service jobs where people were more clearly presented the meaning and purpose of their actions day-to-day versus you know more traditional occupations that are not able to perceive the outcomes as readily. And what they find is that people who are in these roles, these occupations that tend to lend well to, to seeing the helpful or purposeful, meaningful impact of their work day to day. They have lower levels of turnover intentions. They're better suited for their jobs overall. And obviously organizations are going to reap some of the rewards from this too, but that shouldn't be the only only reason that you're doing this. There's a altruistic motive to do it as well. Yeah. I think it was interesting because I did have a lot of things I threw at you with that last question. I hope I touched on them all there. <laughs> no, I, I think what you did is you captured the answer to all of it. And I know earlier you had mentioned how people are complicated, but I think one of the things that may be a very simple thing to remember about people is the importance of connection. And focusing on, you know, interpersonal connection right now, I feel has the greatest value. I know I had one person reach out to me out of the blue, someone who I I don't know quite well, who reached out to me, sent me a message and say, hey, I was thinking about you. I just wanted to say hi. I hope you're doing well. And that message hit me at the right moment and was tremendously important to me and reminded me that uh, my work mattered or things I do matter. I had impacted people positively. So I think even just hearing this today, I I just kind of want to go give a social distancing hug to people that are doing the good work at the grocery stores or in in healthcare. Just there's a lot of people that are working in, in quite literally putting themselves at risk to make sure that we all have what we need. Oh, I know. 
my heart goes out to these people in these, these occupations. I have friends that work as nurses. I have friends that work in healthcare. I have friends, you know, that work as PSAs. I have friends that are doing a lot of hard public health work and, you know, sometimes social work. They're the ones that are really going to be extra stressed out during this time. And we have to support these people. It's a challenging time for these people, especially. And I think we're all relying on them right now. And it's good to show your appreciation for that. Yeah, I don't even know what to say right now. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe that's just it. Show your appreciation to those folks in your community that are keeping things going, that are making sure you have what you need to survive and feed your families and have power. Everybody I know, I think, is, is doing similar things to what you had mentioned. I'm reaching out to people every day. I'm trying to not let social distancing distance me from people socially. So it's the idea of this, like it should be physical distancing rather than social distancing because social isolation is not good necessarily for psychological health. <laughs> We'd all be, you know, making sure that we tap into the people that we are close to. Not only that, but tap into people that need our help that, you know, check in on people. People matter. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought that up, that that whole term terminology change to physical distancing, because we definitely don't want to lose the importance of our social connections with, with one another that are critical for our well-being. Yeah, no, I know. Well, I don't want to leave this on a somber note, but I, I feel like this conversation is important. You know, we're all feeling a lot of this. I, I think a lot of us are starting to be honest with one another. We're feeling off. I think I'm starting to feel frustrated with a lot of posts on social media that seem overly positive. I, I want to focus on acknowledging what, what everybody's feeling and, um, and that personal connection. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think we should encourage everybody at the end of this thing to contact at least three to five people that they know and make sure that you are reaching out and showing that you care and legitimately mean it. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Well, let's call that a call to action for all the listeners. Yeah. We'll reach out to three to five people today. I know I am. I, I will too. <laughs> I will too. Yeah. So um, Aaron, any last thoughts, any thoughts about um, what we could learn? Maybe how about this one? What can we learn from this point in time that might help us think differently about the future? I think it goes back to this idea that the hope context that we were talking about before. Don't ruminate on the negative side of things that we're going through right now. Don't like keep turning over the fact that you you have to stay in your house. That, that's not productive. Entertain possibilities of what your future could look like and what you know future for everybody could look like and trying to find a way by which you can effectively make that outcome occur. So yeah, I did a recently uh, an article about goal setting. You can take a look at it. I'll put it, uh, I'll send the link uh, your way and you can post it in the show notes. Um, so there's plenty of things you can do to start making changes in your life and set some goals. Uh, now's a great time to set goals. It's now's a time to set your aspirations on, on making great change. It's sort of like a new year's and you can make some resolutions and, and try to live up to them. And I think because you're forced to be in these sorts of situations, you're more likely to commit to them, especially if you change your life in a way that's going to be more likely to channel about those positive effects in your life. So feel free to check that out. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll definitely post that out to the show notes for this episode. So his company is Trust Included. I highly recommend to go out to his website, trustincluded.com. He's got great articles out there, great research that he's done in relation to purpose, meaning, personality, and people at work. So Aaron Halliday, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rebecca.
Jen's passion around helping organizations apply evidence-based approaches is clear. However, so is his deep consideration for what helps people perform at their best. Aaron is honest about his research and his observations, but also about his interpretation of the world and how a global pandemic impacts us, both now and potentially in the future. I hope that you do the same. Bring your experience, your observations, and your perspectives into the conversation about the future. As Aaron mentions, this is how we can all gain the benefits of cognitive diversity as we determine together how to shape our future. So, what are you waiting for? Go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Aaron's work to help organizations and people thrive, check out trustincluded.com. That's trustincluded.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.